Hello, I'm Justin Wheeler, and welcome to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This last year, we were able to speak to just over 20 amazing guests about the innovative, creative, and impressive ways they contribute to the nonprofit space. I say it over and over again, but I truly feel like the nonprofit space has some of the brightest out there. With that in mind, I'd also like to shout out our most listened to episode of Nonstop Nonprofit with Beth Cantor and Allison Fine. Together, they recently co-authored The Smart Nonprofit, Staying Human-Centered in an Automated World. If you happen to miss this episode, be sure to listen to that one. AFP was a blast, and we came home with a ton of content. We just released the fourth episode from the event, and I'm looking forward to NIO in September of this year. Nonstop Nonprofit will be back on the road in Kansas City to record some more of these micro-episode interviews at the event. Be sure to drop by our booth if you plan to be there. As we transition to next season of Nonstop Nonprofit, I'd like to take a moment and reshare some of my favorite segments from 2021. Whether you are new to the podcast or an early fan, I hope you enjoy these bite-sized chunks from last year. Let's dive in. It is your number one priority to ensure that your business can continue to deliver on its mission, whether it's this year, next year, and beyond. So we're creating this inclusive environment, building between diverse communities to ensure that our young people can thrive. I'm always so baffled when I when I do webinars. There's always somebody at the end who raises their hand and says, I'm the development director. Should I have access to the budget? I'm always like, yes, you've got to know that. The best thing you can ever do as a nonprofit leader is spend as much money as possible on your story then you're doing it wrong okay that is unacceptable and that is not the way to run a board the best thing that we can do is just raise as much money as possible and then give it to the people around the world if you're going to be sustainable you have to have a multi-channel strategy to reach all of these different generations of donors however they want to be reached one of the principal values that we carry as an organization is to lift grace over guilt and we believe that grace is the greatest agent for change that anyone can ever experience. We all need each other in terms of other nonprofits working together to solve things. The more nonprofits can give their donor base that experience of the impact that's being made on the ground level, there's nothing else you have to give someone. This is Nonstop Nonprofit. All right. Hey everyone, and thanks for tuning in to our best of 2021 recap here. I'm excited to share some of my favorite moments over the last year with just some of the incredible guests we've had on Nonstop Nonprofit. Let's jump right into our first episode of 2021 with Sherry Quam Taylor, a powerful nonprofit growth strategist. This episode was for anyone who struggled to get their board, executive leadership, and development team working on the same fundraising planet in the same budgetary galaxy. We spent a good amount of conversation talking about overhead, and we joked in the episode about how we both, to unpopular opinions, love this word. I have this graphic I show of, of one of my clients that's it's probably an eight-year span, but it's showing how the first four years are kind of like, well, they're kind of there, right? But it's 92% program, 90% program, 91% program. Mm-hmm. And then to show what happened when we shifted that to 75% program and more in admin and fundraising. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Revenue started increasing. And what happened even further on? So like to to show them what that can be over a span of five to 10 years is huge and speaks volumes. And it's, it's super important to the board member who says, we can't do that. We want as much money to go in programs. Well, 
over here on our growth, we're actually putting double back into programs, even though the percentage is less. Yeah. So that doesn't add up. So I, I love, you're so right. I want them to be understanding the annual giving rhythm, but it's got to be, they got to be looking out further and longer. Totally. And, you know, um, I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, um, I, you know, just just kind of my dislike towards the 100% model. And there's a, there is a backstory there. So, uh, you know, I when I was at Liberty in North Korea, I pushed our organization to actually embrace this 100% model. And when we did, we did grow. We grew significantly, but not because we embraced the 100% model, because we were, we were spending 30 to 40% on overhead. Right. Uh, we were hiring the right people. And, you know, the way it was being marketed to the outside was even though we had funders for overhead and there was a different bank account and, and different funds, so 100% private donations were going to programs, if you put the the overall fundraising dollars together, it was still 30 to 40% of, of total revenue. Yeah. And so you create this real disadvantage and you perpetuate this problem in the nonprofit community. The less you spend on overhead, the better it is. When in reality is the more you spend on overhead, and of course there's a threshold, but the more you spend on on, on overhead, the more impact you will make. Yeah. Uh, and we just, we need that. I don't know why that, ha- it just seems so obvious to me now, but for some reason it's still such a- It's huge. Yeah. I always say if, as a fundraiser, like you're, you almost have to be an educator to many donors. I mean, of course, there's savvy donors who get that. Uh, I had a client recently that this year is A, the most money she's ever raised, B, the most money she's ever put back into programs, but C, her program percentage is the lowest it's been. And so she had a she was sharing you know this with a with a donor, and the donor literally said, "Come back to me when you get that turned around. I'm not going to fund that." And I was like. You know, it just, uh, we have to educate, we have to educate, uh, continually. And so I, um, you know, I understand the, the, the desire of the hundred percent model, but like, gosh, I just feel the pressure to educate, especially coming out of 2020, that that wasn't enough. The do more on less model, we got to leave it in 2020. It is not what, you know, my gosh, we even, uh, I, I would look at it as, don't we owe that to the people who have been on the front lines and have served our community so greatly um, that we owe that to them to to understand that that's not how they can grow their business and mission? Yeah, totally. Continuing on the subject of overhead spend, not too long after the episode with Sherry, I got the chance to sit down with Brett Hagler, CEO and co-founder at New Story. Brett has spent his career in both the startup world and the nonprofit sector, mixing the two to achieve success in both. And to that end, Brett is a vocal supporter of the 100% model of nonprofit funding that's used by New Story, Charity Water, and other high-performing charitable organizations. This conversation ultimately stemmed from a LinkedIn post where I shared my thoughts on the 100% model and how many nonprofits are doing it wrong. I was thrilled to have him come on the podcast and share his thoughts on this subject. So you guys have an interesting funding model, which I think has obviously led to the growth you've experienced over the last five years in, in raising the you know, $60 million plus. So talk to us about your approach to funding and why you decided to take the path that you've taken. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we've always had what would be, you know, people refer to as the 100% model. There was really two reasons in the beginning to do it. The first thing was just to give donors a an option um, and choice as to where they would like to allocate their funds, right? And mm-hmm. so we started after our, our first communities we were funding were, were in Haiti, and it was after the earthquake. And I mean, there were horrendous stories in PR about the misuse of funds and mistrusts in charities. I mean, just terrible, terrible stories that definitely like 
repelled a lot of people and wanting to give there. Right. So, so we said, Hey, well, the first thing we can easily do is at least promise that all of the money you're going to give to this, to the homes in Haiti are going to go towards uh, the direct labor costs and the material costs to build the houses. Right. And then we'll get another group to fund the overhead. And so that just, that was like how it started was from Haiti and from so many bad stories that we just didn't want that to be an issue of why people wouldn't, wouldn't fund it. And then the second reason was really that I wanted to be able to communicate to more so like investor types, or if anybody is does any investing in funds, like limited partners that are really funding the future of the, of the organization or of the business. Right. And how, how I communicate to those folks, exactly how I communicate to a venture capitalist that is that I'm a startup and I'm growing. Right. I'm talking to them differently. I'm talking about our team, talking about, you know, R&D that we're going to do with, you know, a risk. And and I'm talking about all these investments into the future. And that's just a way different message than somebody that wants to get involved and wants to you know fund a house for a marginalized family. And so to me, I just thought it was easier to split the, the communication and also split the the option right for donors and so yeah. i know we're going to get into how important opex is and overhead but for us it was just making it simple for people to choose and then it also helped with just very clear communication um, as to which audience we were talking to and how we would talk to that audience yeah totally and I, I, the scenario of treating sort of, I think you guys call them builders, right? The, this mm-hmm. group of donors that that funds the OPEX and overhead. So we're, fundraisers is a venture-backed company. We raised about $25 million in, in venture mm-hmm. capital. And so totally understand the language that's necessary and why investors invest in, and in R&D and, and in OPEX for that future sort of growth potential. So in New Story's case, obviously, you know, there's the the bottom line for your builders isn't obviously this this growth opportunity or this like liquidity event that's going to happen in, you know, three to five years. It's the the promise of impact. So how do you communicate? How do you tie impact into that investor language where it still gets people excited thinking about high growth? with a different sort of outcome. Yeah, for sure. So we have, just for context, we have a, a private group of donors that that we call the builders. And it's a little more than 50 individuals or families right now. They all commit to three-year commitments and to minimum of $50,000 a year to join. Right now, it's the average is closer to 100000 a year to join. So that is just absolutely amazing when, from a planning perspective. And yeah. all of that money goes towards our operational expenses and is, and is unrestricted, right? And so that's just a little bit of how we've, we've set it up. Now, when I'm pitching builders and we're doing our reports, we're really measuring, of course, the, the number of lives that we're impacting and the homes that we're building. But we're also talking about you know future investments that we're making to have more outsized impact, right? So for example, getting into 3D printed houses with our partner Icon, you know, we were able to do that early and to move quickly on it because we had a pool of unrestricted capital from forward thinking, innovative minds that want us to take calculated risk, right? Mm. That's way different than, you know, my mom's friend that is going to give a thousand dollars and she just wants to help another mom get into a house, right? It's like, it's just way different than saying, oh, hey, by the way, like you should help this mom getting into a house. And, you know, it's important that for overhead and for R&D and we're trying to create a 3D printing machine that's probably not <laughs> going to work. And like you should fund that, too. And so we just we split it out and the builders, which funds all our overhead operational expenses in our, in our R&D, they're seeing both the short term benefits, which is the number of families we get to impact 
And, you know, we're talking about our investments that we're making for the future. So, you know, some years, you know, for example, if we're building a new software product that is going to have to do with uh, repayments for the families that move into our homes and we want to track the loans and we want them to actually just do repayments through through software in a system that we've built. Right. Well, yeah. I can go out and communicate to them and say, hey, well, in 2021, it's going to freaking cost half a million dollars to bring on three or four engineers to build this. And so our ratio or whatever you want to look at may be skewed this year, but should I not invest into these software engineers for building a system for, for years to come because it's going to mess up the ratio? Like yeah. it just, that just doesn't make sense because you're investing for the future, right? You're saying, mm. if we get this done, then we believe that, you know, years from now, it's going to have an outsized impact and it's going to be at minimum 10 times more of how many people you can impact. So yeah. it's, it, it, I guess to summarize, it's communicating the, the short-term direct impact, but mm. also the investments that you're making into the future and to make investments that usually comes through team or some type of you know, R&D or innovation project that you need money to put into it. Yeah, makes total sense. This next segment from Karen Hopper, formerly a senior data strategist with MNR Benchmarks. If you've seen MNR reports, campaigns, and content, and you have, even if you don't know it, you know that we're talking cream of the communication crop, and getting Karen on the show was a treat. The last couple of years really showed us that between doing something and doing nothing, well, doing something always wins. Heading into the pandemic was terrifying, but Fundraise saw 250% growth across our customer base, and it was due to nonprofits stepping out of their comfort zone and into the virtual unknown. Here, Karen gives us an insightful approach to a metric that is oh so important to us, revenue per visitor. Something in your research you talk about quite a bit is revenue per visitor. And I think a lot of the nonprofits I talk to, they may not be familiar with that term. Um, can you help define that term? Because I, 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 the next several questions, I'd love to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. So revenue per visitor is a metric that we track for just the overall success of, you know, a donation form, an email blast, whatever it might be, or you're taking the total number of people who were exposed to the content, whether that be your whole website, a donation form, or were sent an email versus how much that activity generated. So for a donation form over a period of time, maybe you got 2000 visitors to your donation form and you raised $20,000. And so then your revenue per visitor would then be calculated by the yeah. number of people who saw it over the amount of Money. Yeah. yeah. Is there like an industry standard, like a benchmark that you would say is a good baseline for organizations or is that entirely dependent sort of on volume and types of appeals and so forth? Or is there a baseline metric that is a good starting point? Yeah, there's not really a baseline for revenue per visitor okay. because it to is totally dependent on traffic and channels that are sending. Because obviously like Organizations that have huge content libraries are going to be generating hundreds of thousands of visits from organic search, and that's people just coming for information. And so their revenue per visitor might be much, much lower than a group that you know has a much smaller audience but is raising the same amount of money. So it really depends on your organization, how much traffic you're getting, and it's really just something to benchmark for yourself. Um, yeah. And it's something that we use especially for like test analysis because when we're evaluating a test, we might have something that will impact conversion rate, but then also might impact average gift either up or down. And so in order to really determine if that test was successful, we say like, what was the overall revenue per visitor? 
And mm. did that, you know, dip in conversion rate get overtaken with an increase in average gift or vice versa, where like we have a higher conversion rate and a lower average gift, but overall, because we had more people donating, the overall amount of money we raised this period of time is higher. That makes sense. And so if the ultimate goal here is obviously as much you know revenue as possible, which lever would you focus on pulling? Is it the average gift size or is it the conversion rate? Like which one, or is you have to do both in parallel? So I know this is audio only and you couldn't see the face I made when you mentioned average gift. And that's largely because I think average gift is a misleading and almost a fake metric for us to be tracking because really that metric gets swayed so easily with one or two large gifts in a data set. And if you're, you know, looking at performance campaign over campaign and you have like, you know, one $5,000 gift in one and not in the other, your campaign overall performance, if you're just looking at average gift, might look that that second campaign is a failure. And in fact, like your average gift might be just fine. Um, so I really like looking at instead like the mode, like the most common gifts, like are people selecting, you know, the lowest amount in your asterisk, the middle amount, like what is the actual most commonly given amount? And then going from there to help that inform, you know, your ask strings and how much you're asking people for on these forms, rather than focusing so hard on average gift as just like a, a calculation of total revenue divided by total gifts. Um, so there's my little uh, welcome to my TED talk on <laughs> average gift and how much I hate that we focus on that metric so much. Next, we've got Mitch Stein, who is the CEO, co-founder, and chief impact officer at Pond. At Pond, they're making nonprofit tech about the nonprofits. Mitch was another solid LinkedIn comment thread that ultimately led us to continue the conversation over the podcast episode. This was a great conversation, and in the spirit of keeping the 100% model debate alive, we dug into it yet again here. I really enjoyed hearing Mitch's approach and thoughts on the subject. What do you think it's going to take to to move the conversation? Because we've we've been having this conversation for years, and so what does it so, actually take? Again, I'll, I'll be very candid. We had a conversation on our team. We were thinking about our own, like you know, where I think we're new. We've just taken this like big step, releasing Ponds two weeks ago, and I'm really excited about it. But there's so so many places to go, and one idea we had was like, okay. Charity Water was incredible at activating people with really amazing marketing, feeling like they were having the ultimate impact and difference, like the what you're talking about, the 100% model. So I don't want this to come across as disparaging of Charity Water whatsoever, because right. they've obviously done an amazing job and amazing work. But our thought was like, what if we could, from a marketing perspective, try to be like the anti-Charity Water? What if we made like tech investment the sexy thing you could do for a nonprofit? Like, what if you wanted, could we get individual donors? As you said, they're a reflection of the same thing. I was yeah. using foundations as an example, right, right, but right. you're totally right. It's a reflection of the same system because by the way, it's their surplus. It's their personal, like mm -hmm. what they took away from their job. And so it's it's the same mindset of like, okay, yeah, I'll part with this money, but I have an expectation about, it's not really charity, even though I got a tax write off for it. <laughs> I still have an expectation of control and power in that dynamic. Yeah. I don't know. Could we, could there be a marketing push that's like tools are sexy for a nonprofit? Like if they are, um, you want them, you should start asking like, why aren't you spending more on your tech as a donor? And if we can't do that within the current construct, because you can't get away from your annual charity navigator rating. And it doesn't matter if one donor thinks that way you need everybody at once. Okay. 
what about, could you put money in their pond account and it's separate from the normal budget? I don't know. We're like, yeah. this is total brainstorming, but it just feels like there's some, we need to do something outside of the system. Yeah. Like the current, you can't really get away from it in the current system because they're so tied to that year in number every year, regardless of like, if one funder is down with like the way things actually need to be. Totally. You know, what, what could be interesting is, and this is kind of piggyback, piggybacks off of, you know, your, your comment to the, to the original post about, you know, how, you know, value is, is created by looking at sort of future earnings. And so, you know, we give these multiples to companies based on that, you know, thinking about from a, from a donor perspective, right? If a donor invests, call it a thousand dollars into a nonprofit, and there's a period of time, maybe it's five years for that gift to actually grow based on mm -hmm. the organization's growth, the value it's creating, the impact it's creating, and the way the donor gets rewarded maybe for that growth, making that initial investment is maybe like a, a true up on taxes, right? A further deduction. So it's kind of like the inverse of a capital gains tax. It's it's a capital gains tax deduction or something like that. That could be interesting yeah. because then it's you go from what can we accomplish this year versus what can I invest? What organizations that I invest to today will have this enormous impact in four or five, six years. You know, and, and it's maybe it's still yeah. self-serving because it's there's you know more reward for for the donor. But I think like in no. order for us to change the model, we got to think about how do we incentivize the donor to stop caring about these ratios that really make zero sense to running a business. Yeah. In 2020, Stop Social Suicide discovered a new fundraising channel that would dramatically change the way they look at raising funds. They were able to raise $4 million and gained 100,000 new donors through Facebook fundraising alone. This is the perfect example of meeting your donors where they are and leveraging that as a way to attract donors. Here, as I was talking with Nick Black, the founder and CEO of Good United, and also the founder of Stop Soldier Suicide, and Tina Starkley, Stop Soldier Suicide's chief growth officer. One of my biggest takeaways from this conversation is how Stop Soldier Suicide's big, bold goal completely flipped their perspective. How much is being raised on on Facebook today? Uh, you know, since the inception, or you know, whatever whatever metrics you have, because a lot of times I think nonprofits kind of passively tip their toe in, in Facebook. I think Good United has obviously cracked something here, and and so would love for our listeners to understand the opportunity that Facebook fundraising presents. Sure. Uh, I think we try to market size this and then focus on user behavior. So Facebook, to my knowledge, I think is at 67 or 70 percent of Americans spend time at Facebook. The most recent report that I've seen is Americans spend 43 minutes a day. No offense, Tina, or anyone who stops or suicide, I spend zero minutes a month on the website. I spend zero minutes a month on any website. So if we know that people are spending time in the places where they want to be, um, how do we think through how to engage with them there and being able to leverage a great platforms like yourself to be able to follow up and build that relationship? And I think that Facebook came to market. I think they just released that $6 billion has been given over the past five years. Um, they're starting to unroll out features in Instagram. But I think, Justin, that there's a real neat opportunity of what's happening. Uh, and COVID has just accelerated the user behavior in that TikTok has giving functionality. We're hearing great things with Twitch, um, you know, all these different kind of niche uh, in networks, Spotify, YouTube, it really seems like these other networks are also trying to follow along with what Facebook's proven out. And that who has better stories than philanthropy, right? So like if you want their mm. business models advertising. So if you want people to engage in eyeballs and engage with content, who's got a better story than Stop Sword of Suicide? 
or pick your organization, right? I mean, really compelling stuff. So yeah. how can those for-profit businesses enable and empower nonprofits to want to, you know, focus and put content into their, their world? Got it. And I know, um, Tina, one of like the perceived, I think, challenges that a lot of organizations, we, we hear this all the time at Fundraise, is, well, you know, Facebook, you don't get the data, so we can't do, we can't run our normal donor stewardship plays. Does an organization have to choose between data and, and good stewardship? What's your kind of reaction to that obstacle that, that we hear from so many nonprofits? It's really interesting to think about that question in the historical sense and that every nonprofit organization, and like I said, you know, I came from a, a nonprofit organization that was, you know, a legacy brand, one that's been around for a hundred years. And so we're very used to doing things a certain way, but it's really not an or either or at this point there to Nick's point, people are spending their time in this channel. So if we want to acquire net new, you know, participants, donors, volunteers, we need to go where they're spending time. It's about, you know, it being a starting point for the organization. So what it's doing is giving, you know, exposure and fundraising at the consumer level, maybe for the first time. What we're finding at Stop Soldier Suicide is 80 to 85, even up to 90% of the people who engage in our Facebook fundraisers are brand new donors to Stop Soldier Suicide. So as we acquire them, then it's up to us. You know, Good United provides this wonderful platform where we are able to engage with them in platform. Their, their bot technology is really, really robust in that it makes the person on the other end of that, that donor or that volunteer feel like we're having a personal one-on-one -on -one experience with them. And so then it's up to us to use the data that we gather either through the Facebook reports when the donor does check the box and say, yes, you can have my information or from the Good United bot that says, hey, we'd love to share your information with Stop Soldier Suicide. Is this your email address? Do you consent to, for us to use it, right? So now, we, now it's up to us. And then to Nick's point, to use those donor engagement strategies to pull those people deeper into our organization. So, you know, from my perspective, it's an acquisition channel where people are spending their time that we yeah. need to understand that consumer attention is, is you know, their, their attention is where we need to go rather than trying to pull them to where we want them to be. You won't find a lawyer who'll argue that a person innocent of a crime should do the time. It's not a negotiation. With this in mind, in 1992, Innocence Project embarked on a simple yet revolutionary mission. Use DNA to exonerate innocent people who have been incarcerated and turn those pardons into policy to prevent others from being wrongfully convicted. Fast forward to 2021, and Innocence Project is responsible for 232 of the 375 people who've been freed based on DNA evidence. Sounds like a win for everyone, right? Christina Sorns, executive director at Innocence Project, did an amazing job explaining the organization's outlook on scale, not only at the state and national level, but on the policy and reform level as well. When you think about the, uh, the accomplishments and the victories your organization has had, how can it scale, right? I mean, you guys, have, you guys have scaled over the last, you know, five, six, seven, eight years. I mean, you're continuing to grow. Is it, is it more people? Is it more money? Is it more resources? Is it, is it more attorneys? What, what sort of, when you think about um, scaling the organization, the overall impact, is it possible to do? And is it a lack of something? Or, uh, you know, from your perspective, if, if, what, what's the best way people can kind of come alongside Innocence Project and, and support the important mission to, to help scale the impact and continue to see amazing uh, victories? That's, that's such a great question. Thank you. So, you know, the first answer is none of us, right, can scale to the problem of this, of wrongful conviction in this country, because there's still, right, I, I often think of it as like a faucet, yeah. right? There's a faucet that, that's running, right? And there's still innocent people coming into the system constantly right now, right? And until we can turn the faucet off, 
right? And that's sort of with the policy work, right? The reform work, mm. we'll never be able to catch up. But that said, yes, of course, we could use more of everything. But it, the ways that we try to deal with the scale problem is through various ways. First, we're the headquarters of a nationwide network of innocence organizations that are working together to, to address this problem. We are the National Innocence Project, but there are innocence projects in states throughout the country who are doing this work right with us. Second, right, we partner with large law firms who help us in so many different ways, right? They partner with us to litigate cases. They partner with us to help on our intake process and screening requests for assistance, right? They partner with us on amicus briefs, so many different ways that give us additional capacity that we just wouldn't otherwise have. Third, we also rely heavily, right, on our supporters to engage around the topics that we are talking about. So again, right, we have our policy team is moving legislation in states throughout the country on a range of issues, right? We're trying to improve compensation to exonerees when they come home. We're trying to build accountability structures in the in the legal system to ensure that when someone is wrongfully convicted, there's meaningful accountability to those who caused the wrongful conviction. You know, we are trying to address eyewitness. We're still trying to address right eyewitness mm-hmm. identification procedures and laws. There's so many ways that we're moving reforms. And so having, you know, our supporters join and express their support for that legislation. Like, so people in Nebraska should be supporting the legislation we're moving in Nebraska. People in New York should be supporting the legislation we're moving in New York. Occasionally, also, we call for assistance around specific cases, specifically, most notably, the death penalty cases, right? And we had last year a case Mm. in Tennessee, Purvis Payne, who was very close to execution, notwithstanding really powerful uh, evidence of innocence. And we did a call for support and we was, you know, we were just blown away by the support we received. I think over 750,000 people, you know, answered our call wow. for support in that case. And so all of those ways are, you know, we are maximizing sort of the the imprint that we are making, right, in, in terms of, of all the ways that we're engaging. So both in litigation and in policy, you know, we, we need the partnerships with organizations and individuals to do the work that we're doing. From finding her job through a pretty traditional and now kind of outdated method, a newspaper listing. From finding her job through a pretty traditional and now kind of outdated method, a newspaper listing, to being a leading innovator at American Heart Association, Brooke Codney, National Director at American Heart Association, has guided their culture of innovation, culminating in an innovation center, a dedicated function within the American Heart Association that has led to transformational growth for the organization. Here she breaks down the vision and execution of their innovation center with special attention to the team that makes it happen. I noticed that I think it was about five years ago, American Heart basically created a new function, a new sort of business within the organization all around innovation. And so can you talk to us a little bit more about this new business function, what it does and what types of goals it has to help push the organization forward? Yeah, love to. Super passionate about this part. Yeah. So... (laughs) You know, one of the things that our organization does, um, you know, we set decade long goals, health impact goals, you know, we're going to accomplish this thing over the course of the next decade. 
a decade is a really long time <laughs> to set goals for, especially when you're trying to, you know, do things like drive human behavior and change health outcomes. And so, you know, the approach that we take in order to set ourselves up to help reach those goals is that we have a three-year strategic planning process. And that three-year strategic planning process really takes a look at, you know, every part of our business from fundraising to the science side, you know, to, you know, even new and emerging things and says, you know, how are we doing? How is each piece of the work that we're doing helping us get to that decade-long goal? And what do we need to do over the course of the next three years to make sure that we're tracking, you know, towards, towards those large, big impact goals that we've set as an organization? organization. So if you roll the clock back a couple of strategic planning cycles ago, um, we realized as an organization that from a revenue generation perspective, um, we were not set up to reach the goals that we needed to from a revenue perspective to fund the work that we do that helps drive you know, the research and the programming and everything we need to really make those health impact goals um, and ultimately end heart disease and stroke, which is what we're all trying to do, work ourselves out of a job. But as we looked at, you know, currently how we were doing business as a nonprofit organization from revenue generation standpoint, we, we understood that we needed to be more disruptive. You know, we don't want to get rid of the things that we're doing that are working so well for us, like our HeartWalk program, which was, you know, the top peer-to-peer -to -peer fundraising program this, this past year, um, and some of our other long-standing programs like, you know, our youth markets programs. But at the same time, we knew we needed to push ourselves and that in order to continue to do what we were doing and hold on to those things that work really well for us as an organization and innovate, we couldn't ask the people who were driving what was going really well to also think about innovation because we all know how that works. Yep. Um, you know, you focus on the things you know how to do and you feel really comfortable doing and continue to be successful and the other stuff that can sometimes be hard, you know, challenging, kind of gets pushed down to the list. And so as part of that strategic planning process, they carved out this innovation team, very small team uh, for a little bit. It was just me, but, you know, car carved out this, this innovation function within the organization specifically focused on, you know, the fundraising, volunteer engagement, you know, that sort of engine of driving the revenue within the organization. And so, you know, goals you asked about, those have certainly evolved over time. But if you look at what has remained the same is that We've always said this innovation function needs to do two things. Really look at what we're doing now, those core special events, those core fundraising programs, and find ways within their structure to continue to innovate within program. So, you know, bringing new technology in, you know, a new focus here or there, not completely changing the program, but allowing it to continue to grow and, you know, but still stay sort of true to itself. And then the second part of the role and this function of innovation within our organization is to be paying attention to what's happening outside the American Heart Association bubble, right? So mm. what are the trends both within the nonprofit space, but within the world, like what's happening? How are people connecting? How are people engaging? You know, what are the new technology platforms? 
and allow this, this function to be able to pay attention to that and then figure out ways to apply that to how we can be, you know, developing new fundraising and new engagement opportunities um, for the organization. So it's sort of a, a dual, a dual role. And there's certainly points in time where there's more focus put on how do we evolve our current programs. And then there's other times where the focus is more you know, really on how do we develop that new next program that the organization needs. I I wonder too, if jumping into this exercise of, of looking at, you know, new opportunities for Mm -hmm. engaging individuals and new ways to to raise revenue and, and ways to optimize kind of existing channels. My bet would be, and perhaps I'm wrong, is that as you kind of went through this evaluation, you also realized that your donor demographic was (laughs) an older demographic and in order to, and you know, with the goals that you have, you know, to cure heart disease and and whatnot, like it might outlive the age of of your you know your key donor demographic yeah. in terms of the work that needs to be done. And so, how much of the focus around your innovation has been to also look at acquiring this new demographic of donors, you know, millennials and and so forth, uh, to be a part of the new type of donors and supporters? How much of your focus is on 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 that side of innovating as well? It's a great question. Um, incredibly important. You know, again, as part of that strategic planning process, we really look at who who is the AHA donor today. And, you know, we've always been relatively diversified, meaning programs, okay. Go Red for Women, focused on women, Heartball, certainly focused on a dim- different demographic than what is now Heart Challenge, but what was, you know, just Heart Walk for a while, which is very corporate, you know, but you are right. We tended to our, our very, and, and still still today, but we're, things are changing, but our very core demographic is, is a woman between the ages of about 40 and 55, right? Like that's really still the, the sweet spot. And we age up on some programs and we age down on some programs like our youth market. But we did identify, you know, this gap that we had as an organization when I first started in this role five, six years ago, it was as how do we really engage millennials more deeply? And that's still certainly a focus for us. But as the millennials' lifestyles have you know, changed over the past five years, I would say that we've even doubled down on how do we engage Gen Z or Zoomers, depending on who you're talking yep. to, for how want to call this group. But yeah, you know, we approach innovation from you know sort of a design thinking approach, and so we we really look at you know what are we solving for, not you know what's the solution, but what are we really trying to solve for as an organization, and the engagement of you know sort of younger audiences has certainly been an area of focus for us, especially understanding how differently Gen Z or Zoomers want to interact with charity and just with the world in general, even from millennials, let alone boomers, right? There's really vast differences in how, you know, to best approach these audiences and engage them that we have, you know, over the past couple of years, really put a significant focus on developing our programs, you know, to really meet that key important audience. Deborah Barge's track record of working with nonprofits that have a deep history of donor engagement, like March of Dimes and Muscular Dystrophy Association, has given her insight into not just ways to cultivate donors, but also how to fast track changes internally to achieve maximum buy-in. And that's not all Deb came to talk about. One of the things that brought Deb to Big Brothers Big Sisters of America and step in as the Chief Development Officer was the pedal to the metal way justice, equity, and inclusion are fused in everything that they do, 
from the CEO on down to the youth they mentor and how they've shifted gears thanks to COVID. You recently became the chief development officer of one of, I'd say, America's you know favorite charities, Big Brothers Big Sisters of America. So tell us about your new role as the CDO and what what you're hoping to accomplish in the position. Oh, thank you. It is the most fascinating organization to look historically at, and yet just as relevant from its founding over a hundred years ago as it is today as a mission. The organization, Big Brothers, Big Sisters, is focused on one-to-one relationships, mentorship. Every young person deserves a mentor in their corner, someone's champion for their success. And what I love about this organization is while we are well-known across the nation, our work today couldn't be more relevant as youth. One in three youth are missing that active role model mentor in their lives today. And we Mm. think about the last year and a half, and we talk a lot about what the loss of education has meant, but 20% of our youth have lost their mentor over this time. They've lost that person who's on their side that's not a parent or guardian, really supporting their success and being a a champion for them, irregardless of situation. What I love about Big Brothers Big Sisters, and part of my choice was to be, as a woman of color, in an organization that speaks to the community in which I am from and of. And I think it's really important that this organization thrive today for our youth of tomorrow. It is where we are. What is exciting is I think people are realizing the investment in our youth is crucial and the investment in mentorship is crucial. And as an individual, even for you as a person and me as a person to talk about, I'm where I am today because of the people who stood along and were models for me, where I could see myself in another. I was supported by someone outside of my parent or guardian. You can do this. You could achieve more. You should try for those coaches and those mentors in our lives at key phases of life, not just at you know age 12, but at age 19 as well, when I'm trying to decide what's after high school. Those mentors are crucial. And it's part of what's got me so excited about this work. It is time to come around the youth of today and ensure that not only do they have the opportunity to have that mentor, but that our workplaces are ready for them when they join, that they're able to see each other and those like them in places of leadership, and that the youth voice is honored. Look at what our youth did last year. Look at what our younger generations led in social justice. And with an organization that serves over 70% BIPOC youth, we are listening to that voice every day. And what we are doing is creating allyship across young people and their mentors who are not 70% BIPOC, candidly. So we're creating this inclusive environment, building Hmm. between diverse communities to ensure that our young people can thrive. So we look at it as who we were found, how we were founded, and what we do today, and we call it Jedi. It's based. We were born out of the justice system to build equity and inclusion through these diverse communities, mounted on mentorship, and it's working. Mm. It works today, and it worked a hundred years ago, and it's what I think is going to help us move forward as a nation in a meaningful way. Wow, that's yeah. I mean, to think about, I mean, it's so much, so much there. And you know, one of the things that like stood out when you when you referenced, and I was going to ask a little bit about Jedi because I was I was looking into that, and it seems 
to be not as much about the culture today, as you said, in the, during its founding, which really, I mean, makes, you know, Big Brothers Big Sisters of America incredibly relevant, especially for the time we're living in when, when corporations and individuals, you know, really examining how do we become more inclusive? How do we get better at these and very important topics today? And in many ways, Big Brothers Big Sisters is an example of how that can be done, you know, really from the top down. And so, you know, be, I know you've only been there for a couple of months, but is this con- this Jedi concept, is it something that it's it's a core value where every employee understands, understands the importance. And it's it's what we really it's it's the man it's become a mandate of of the organization. That's what it seems like from the outside, reading it more more about it. But from your experience on the inside, is, is that how it is as well? It's that and more. It's embedded and infused in every one of our programs. So you don't have a program like our workplace mentoring program that doesn't have Jedi infused in it. You don't have our big futures program that's really focused on growing services for those up to age 25, because you're, guess what? We're not done developing just because we graduated from high school. We still need those mentors. It is in our programs that serve little girls and what they want to be as they age. So it is embedded in all every program. It's embedded in us as a workforce. It's a curriculum of training that we share with our bigs to make sure that they're bringing that to our littles. And then in our entire network, all the staff are participating in. It is who we are. It's less of a uh, check the box. It's authentically who we've been and who we continue to be. And we make sure that it is what we live and breathe every day. Confidence is a tricky thing. It's simple to say, to talk about, and to identify. But confidence is difficult to reach and it's even harder to hold on to. For my next clip, I'm talking with Mallory Erickson, a fundraiser turned executive coach whose confidence unlocked an almost 4X increase in her nonprofit's revenue. She says it so well. When the value your nonprofit offers aligns with a funder, the dynamics of your conversation are fundamentally shifted. Yeah, and so Power Partners is really based on this like fundamental concept. So I'll start with Power Partners because that's really my signature program and all the ways that I work with organizations really center around that. So Power Partners, the Power Partners formula is a course that anyone can join and be a part of. It's a community of fundraising professionals, sometimes the executive director, sometimes the development director, sometimes the development coordinator, who is looking to fundamentally change the way they fundraise to focus on building reliable, sustainable, strategic partnerships with individuals, with corporations, with foundations. But the underlying principle is that we as humans and humans being companies and humans being foundations and humans being individuals giving, we, so many of us want to achieve the same goals. We want to see the same change in our community. We want to see the same change in our world. And not everyone, but your job as a fundraiser is to identify the people who do, who share the desire to impact the world the way that your organization impacts the world. And your job is to be able to find them and identify them and then to speak to them in that shared language. So really to understand, I talk about a lot inside my program, this idea of funder lenses. How do you put on the glass? You know, I'm wearing pink glasses, you're wearing green glasses, you know, And so when I'm talking to you, I need to sometimes think about what does this look like through green glasses? Because if I describe something to you and it's all pink, 
you're going to be like, I have literally no idea what she's talking about, right? But if I know you're wearing green glasses and I describe something to you through the lens of green glasses, you're going to be able to connect with what it is that I'm sharing with you. And it doesn't mean you're sharing something fundamentally differently. Like these principles sort of go back to design thinking concepts around empathy, right? Like we all experience the world in different ways. And it's our job as fundraisers to find the people where that alignment is really there and then be able to translate that alignment to the lenses that different funders are wearing. And we need to do that in the way we engage them. We need to do that in the way we have conversations with them. And then being authentic and transparent around our desire to build mutually beneficial partnerships. Like, I see you. Like, I see what you're trying to do out there. It's so clear to me based on X and Y that you really want to move the needle around Z. Over here at our organization, we are fiercely committed to the same thing. I wonder if there's an opportunity for us to come together and be able to blank, blank, blank. Like that is so different than like, hey, come to our gala because we're like in your local community and buy a table for your friends because you should. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And so that Power Partners is really based on like my mantra for Power Partners is that great fundraising is not an ask. It's an offer. And when we understand that and when we internalize that and I have a process inside the course called Asset Mapping, where organizations lay out all of the things of value inside their organization, way beyond their programs and services, but things like thought leaders on their board of directors or the skills of their different staff members, the number of people Mm -hmm. on their email list, their Instagram following, their blogs that could be sponsored by companies where there's content overlap, audience sharing. I mean, they have so much. And actually, I just got off, I can't say too much about this yet, but I got off a call with someone today who works with some of the biggest brands in the world around and helping them become like businesses for good, like really. And the thing he said is he said, you know, Nonprofits do not recognize that they are sitting on treasure, that Hmm. they have the keys that so many people are looking for around what's happening in communities, how to move the needle on certain things. But there's a communication gap with their ability to connect with either the sometimes it's the for profit sector, sometimes it's individuals with their different life experiences. And sometimes, you know, it's foundations because again, they're writing everything from their pink glasses. Um, And so Power Partners is really like helping them both be able to put on those other glasses, identify the assets of the organization, match them appropriately. So find that alignment and then get over that communication gap by effectively engaging them. Next, we're talking about a continually popular term, the Great Resignation. If you haven't heard about this, basically, it refers to the 4 million people quitting their jobs each month in the U.S. since April 2021. There are a lot of reasons why so many people are exiting, but one that comes up a lot is company culture. Here, Tiffany and I discuss what we feel really contributes to a company culture on a simple scale of investing in your team. So one of the other challenges the Great Resignation is posing for nonprofits is it's on the other end. It's on the hiring end, right? I mean, the job market is more competitive than it's been in I don't I don't know how long. I haven't seen this many nonprofits looking for a head of fundraising or head of marketing or you know you name the position. There's there's just a lot of competition in the job market today, which is good for employees, right? To to ensure that they get 
uh, the right compensation, the right offer, and, and, and so forth. Um, but for organizations, nonprofits, maybe with with you know less resources, how do they stand out? You know, how what advice would you give to an, uh, an organization that's looking to make some key hires, but is just having a really hard time, whether it's from a you know a, a competitive compensation perspective or other factors? Uh, how can organizations really stand out in, in this job market? That is the million dollar question that I feel like everyone's trying to find out right now or figure out because it's true. It's so competitive. First, I want to say, I don't think we should discount compensation. And Justin, you had a really interesting post on LinkedIn this week. I'd love to get your insight on because oftentimes we're so under market with compensation that really it's unrealistic to try to get the type of talent we want to get. So I don't think we should completely discount it. And I think it's worth looking at how under market is our compensation uh, because it's going to be very hard to get top talent for that. And especially if comp is inequitable or, or if it's way under, what I've also seen is people might accept that job, but then after six months or 12 months, they're going to look for a pretty substantial raise. And if you can't offer it, then they're going to leave at that point. So that's something that I think is important to not just skip over because it is something that people are looking for. And I don't think that's bad. I don't think it's bad that people are wanting to make sure that they're they're being valued for their work. But I would love your take on that, Justin, because I know this is hard and, and that's much easier said than done is to try to increase the compensation. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll, I'll just kind of use a few different examples of about about three years ago. So so I've transitioned obviously to board at Liberty North Korea where I was there for, you know, five, five, six years. Uh, one of the things we did about three years ago was we just saw how terrible the team was being paid. And the board mandated, and at first this was hard. It, it, I'd say at first the half the board, we were split on this decision. But then we, you know, we had good conversation around it and got everyone on board with it. But essentially we said, hey, for this next year, we want to shrink our program spend by 20%. And we want to reinvest in this team and in the executive team, you know, all the way down to the entry level position. We want to bring compensation to a much more competitive, not just in the nonprofit market, but in the for-profit market, what would be the comparable job? You know, we made that investment and and Liberty North Korea has had really strong retention over the last several years. And I think part of that is not just an incredible mission, but because they do compensate their team pretty well and they know that if we're going to find the best talent, we have to pay for it. So I, I'm of the strong opinion, if an organization is looking to fulfill its mission, there are no shortcuts around investment in infrastructure and people. If you shortcut those two things, you're likely to either A, delay accomplishing your mission into who knows when, or B, you know, go belly up because you're going to have a constant cycle of people leaving, unhappy employees, and, and so forth. So I, I've been talking about this also in conjunction with, because it, it directly relates to an organization's you know, financial ratios, the overhead versus program spend. A lot of organizations feel like they don't have the resources because they also have this sort of like, you know, artificial mandate to spend a certain percentage on operating expenses versus, you know, programs. And so I think that we, that mentality just needs to obviously be rid of in the nonprofit community because it's not helpful. Mm -hmm. I definitely think that if you're going to market to hire a chief development officer, whether you're in a million dollar organization or a $25 million organization or a hundred million dollar organization, you're going to have to pay, you know, you're going to have to pay a six figure salary for for that role, right? It's just, there's just no way that an experienced fundraiser is, is gonna, you know, 
they're, they're going to be passionate about the cause, but at the end of the day, they still have to feed their family, right? They still have to make mm-hmm. ends meet. And I think that the more an in, in, individual, and again, this is true whether you're in for-profit or non-profit, if an, indiv- an individual you know, is able to meet their own needs, they're going to be a much more productive and happy employee anyways. So that's, that's my feeling is like, if, if you're trying to, if you're trying to find an all-star, like don't, don't expect, you know, a half-assed compensation to get, find, to get you that all-star. You're not, you're not going to get it. Yeah. So yeah, I kind of rambled there, but that's, that's my take on sort of how it compensation aligns with talent specifically in the nonprofit space. Absolutely. And I know it's an uphill battle because you're fighting against the perception of how low overhead should be, whether that's your donors or your board. But there is a real case to be made that if you bring in an an all-star for that chief development officer role, they are going to be able to, like the ROI is going to be so much higher. You're going to be, they're going to be able to bring in so much more money. And so it really is an investment. And I don't think that we often look in nonprofits. We don't look at our people as investments and that's really short-sighted because if you get some real talented people in, they're going to be able to drive results so much better and get you to where you want to be um, mm-hmm. instead of kind of bringing in people who are more like your C players who are going to like do the role but aren't going to like drive it forward, drive the mission forward, drive the fundraising efforts forward. So investing in your people, you really can never go wrong. And I think if you're trying to make that case, you can look at some of the stats around like, what is it going to cost us if we don't bring in someone incredible for this role? Like, what's the downside there? And what is the cost Mm, of turnover, right? It costs up to 70% to fill a position, 70% of a person's annual salary, which is amazing. But if you think about it, like the months that the the role is open, like the hours you spend recruiting and interviewing, the hours you spend training, um, the institutional knowledge that leaves. And so, you know, if we're able to take a longer term approach to be like investing more into comp and benefits gets us those A players, but also helps us retain them, it's going to have exponential ROI and really save costs in the long run. So that's like, I know we talked for a while about that, but I do want to just kind of make sure we, I wanted to make sure we hit on that because I think it's really important. For our last clip here, I want to highlight episode 50 with Nathan Hill, the VP of Marketing at Next After. Now, for some context, his episode was focused around end-of-year giving, and he told me something that just blew my mind. He said, it's amazing how many nonprofits opt out of communications during the giving season. Nathan isn't talking about being skimpy with the outreach. He's talking about zero communications. During a month, typically brings in a third of the year's giving. Nonprofits, how can this be happening? Well, here's a piece from our conversation that addresses this. Uh, I was actually had a a speaking gig at an event a a couple weeks ago, a few weeks ago. And the topic of the the whole like virtual event was about uh, innovation and how do we inject innovation into like nonprofit fundraising and giving. And and then at the same time, we were talking about year end specifically based on a research report we we put together uh, uh, analyzing like multi-channel fundraising efforts during the 2020 season. And what we found through that was like, yeah, I know we want to talk about innovation and how we do all these cool things, but what we've really found is like, I I mean, text texting is not that innovative and calling your donors is not that innovative, but no one's even doing those things. Like out of 119 organizations that we analyzed the entirety of the 2020 year end fundraising season, I think we got one text or no text messages and we got one phone call out of 119 nonprofits. So like there's like this basic like multi-channel fundraising type of approach that we talk about and we don't do. And then the really basic blocking and tackling of like 
we should connect with our coastal donors and we should connect with our online donors and maybe use some of those channels like interchangeably to connect with someone holistically. Like oftentimes we just don't do a lot of those basic things. So then to think about, you know, how do you inject innovation into that? Like that's way down the road if you're not even doing like the basic stuff. So that ultimately, if there's one thing that I would encourage anyone to focus on, uh, and this sounds way too simple, but the data is striking. Like number one, just show up. Because it's it's amazing uh, how many nonprofits are, are are completely opting out of communication during the most critical giving season of the year with people who have donated to them this year. So maybe there is an intentionality around like, well, they gave to us this year, and so maybe we shouldn't go ask them again. But in this research study specifically, we had given to them like six or seven months before, and now they're they're choosing not to communicate with us during such a critical season. And you know what? everyone else is going to be communicating with me trying to get my right. some some portion of my wallet but i've expressed interest in in you and that i care about this cause so so why wouldn't you show up so that's like that's point number 1 is is just be there and connect with your donors even if it's not like a fully baked comprehensive strategy like just send something and 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 be there and be present but then beyond that i'd also encourage uh, fundraisers and marketers and nonprofits to do something besides just ask for money uh, it's really easy in the season to you know, we put together your direct mail appeal, put together like a single email appeal, send these things out, hope for the best, and then kind of move on. But one thing that we find very consistently, both in the year-end season and, and throughout the year, is just the impact that little bits of cultivation have. And that's really where you know, I think the marketing side of things often comes into play and where these you know maybe fundraising and marketing don't communicate nearly enough because marketing often has the content that might cultivate someone really well, but fundraising may not have access to that. But if you can kind of marry those two things, both the appeal side of it and the cultivating content, you can actually see if you invest in cultivation uh, on an ongoing basis, we tend to see uh, big increases in revenue just because someone is able to stay more connected to the cause mm. and the ultimate outcomes of their giving. That's good. Yeah, I was I was gonna, I was just gonna share, uh, add on to that. You know, a lot of times too, what happens when you have strong cultivation, it does prime the donor just to to give when when they're ready to give, right? So like it might even be shortly after the initial kind of cultivation, you know, tactic that took place, whatever, whatever that strategy might be. I, I've seen that time and time again in, in, in my fundraising. It's donors know that it's their job to give. They know that. They get that. Like that's that's why they're talking to an organization, right? So not mm. not again, like not that like every donor should never be a, have a direct ask. Of course we need to do that. But there's sure. also opportunities when you cultivate a donor in such a in such a great way that they're gonna give their best gift without you asking being so direct. Again, it doesn't happen all the time or it's it's not it's not something I would say that should be your that should be your entire fundraising strategy, but yeah. cultivation does have that sort of nice low hanging fruit for the donors that are serious. Absolutely. And then there's the argument around like, you know, average gift size and things like that. Like if someone has a deeper understanding of the ongoing impact of their gift, like they're going to be that much more likely to say yes when you send that appeal out next time and also to say yes at a higher level because they have seen consistently in their inbox or in their mailbox, or maybe you've called them on the phone and you've told them stories of impact, like they have seen the impact on a cause and a value set that they care about through their yeah. giving. So there's, there's, there's totally. tons of ramifications for just cultivating well and staying connected to people. Well, there you have it, everyone. I hope you've been as inspired as me with these conversations. I appreciate you tuning in to this episode. I'm looking forward to the future of Nonstop Nonprofit here in 2022 and hope you'll be here to join me. 
Until next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Nonstop Nonprofit. This podcast is brought to you by your friends at Fundraise, nonprofit fundraising software built by nonprofit people. If you'd like to continue the conversation, find me on LinkedIn or text me at 562-242-8160. And don't forget to get your next episode the second it hits the internets. Go to nonstopnonprofitpodcast.com and sign up for email notifications today. See you next time.